you, Ian. Well, I love baptisms. I don't know about you. Uh, it's such an exciting time when you see people stepping out in faith in a new way and uh, just, just making those kind of decisions to say, I want to follow Jesus and I want to put him first in my life. And this is the difference that Jesus is making in me. And a great encouragement to us today to have two of our younger people, um, or in Malachi's case, an older man. I've got to start calling him a man from now on. Um, just sharing what Jesus means and the difference he's making. And I don't know if you're here, many of you have been here last week, and uh, you'll have heard James talking about baptism in the Holy Spirit. So that's, this is baptism in water, and he was talking about what happens when the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and empowers us. And uh, talking about how that's available to all of us, and he traced through from the Old Testament through to now uh, what it is that God does in our lives and how he's available to us. And I want to follow up on that today by talking particularly about what difference it makes to us and why that's relevant to each and every one of us. I want to talk about why this is relevant to each one of us, and I want to do that through telling three stories today. And we're going to look at three characters and look at what we can learn from them, and uh, we're going to, from though, hopefully understand why this is relevant and why we shouldn't write ourselves off from God's plan and what God wants to do amongst us. So, because I think many of us can actually write ourselves out of God's plans at times. And I want to show you what I mean. So, if you have a Bible, we're going to be turning to um, the book of Judges to start with. The words are mostly going to be on the screen, though I've got some that won't be. Uh, So, here we go. Book of Judges. And this is chapter 6. And this is the story of a guy called Gideon. I'm going to read the first six verses, some of which I've got on the screen for you. Uh, The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight, so the Lord handed them over to the Midianites for seven years. The Midianites were so cruel that the Israelites made hiding places for themselves in the mountains, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, marauders from Midian, Amalek, and the people of the east would attack Israel, camping in the land and destroying crops as far away as Gaza. They left the Israelites with nothing to eat, taking all the sheep, goats, cattle, and donkeys. These enemy hordes, coming with their livestock and tents, were as thick as locusts. They arrived on droves of camels too numerous to count, and they stayed until the land was stripped bare. So Israel was reduced to starvation by the Midianites. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help. So we're reading three stories from the Old Testament. The Bible's divided up into two bits. Two-thirds of it called the Old Testament's before Jesus. A third is from Jesus onwards. And we're reading three stories from the Old Testament. This is before Jesus came. And we're talking about Israel because these are God's chosen people. God chose a nation for himself. The reason being that he wanted to bless them, but also use them, like Nat's just been saying, to be a blessing to others and to to take God's word to others, to model what it meant to be be part of God's family and be God's people and to show the world what being God's family meant. And so he chose Israel to demonstrate this. And that's why we're reading these stories about this nation of Israel. Now, They were God's people, but that didn't protect them from being foolish at times, nor did it protect them from being sinful at times, nor did it protect them from attack. And so at various points we read in the Old Testament, this first two-thirds, we read stories of when Israel are kind of just, as as it were, going off the edge of a cliff, just like plummeting away from God and deciding to do their own thing. We read times when they're full of themselves or full of pride or, or just decided to put God to one side and do whatever it is they want to do. And none of that's very helpful. And it ends up with them being in a mess quite often, actually. 
they end up getting themselves in a bit of a pickle again and again and again. And this is one of those stories. And the story starts with the, the verse saying, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. And as you're reading through this book of Judges, it could have said, and the, Lord, and the Israelites again did evil in the Lord's sight. Because they're again and again and again getting into this same pattern of going their own way and going away from God. And they're in a bit of a mess. It says that God's handed them over to the Midianites for seven years. And what God does at various times is he says to his people, well, I'm going to allow stuff to come into the nation that you wouldn't choose, that I wouldn't choose for you, but I'm going to allow it for a period of time until you've sorted yourselves out. And what I mean by that is, and what God means by that is, that until they've got to the point of going, God, I can't do it on my own. Until the Israelites are saying, God, we can't do this, we're so sorry. We've been going our own way and we need your help. And so that's what God's done in this this first section where he's saying, I'm handing you over to the Midianites for seven years. Now, these people are... They're from further south than Israel. They've traveled up and their, their modus operandi, as it says in this story, is to, to ride in on camels and to come and just, this kind of these different bands, they come and raid the area of Israel, the nation of Israel. And they come in again and again and again. And actually what they're doing is camping out in the fields. So many of them. I have to read this carefully because you might think it's insulting the Midianites, but it says this, the enemy hordes coming with their livestock and tents were as thick as locusts. Now, it's not referring to the intellectual capacity, obviously. It's referring to the numbers of them. They arrived on droves of camels, too numerous to count, and they stayed until the land was stripped bare. So they're coming at harvest time or before the harvest, and they're coming to plant themselves in the land of Israel, and they're just camping there. So the Israelites have retreated back to their walled cities, their towns, their smaller places, and, and there they are. The Midianites are coming again and again, and they're just camping. And they're not on their own. There's three groups of people. The, Mid- the Midianites, the Amal- Amalekites, and the people from the, the east, it says. People from the east have come as well. And they've come in these three groups to gang up on Israel. And you notice it takes years. I haven't put it on the screen there, but it says it, they took them seven years to begin to cry out to God for help. They were reduced to starvation. And in the middle of this, we see a guy called Gideon who appears, and he's the one who's referred to in the top part of this, um, the top verse that's on the screen. It says, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, mighty hero, the Lord is with you. And some of you will have read the story before, many will have read the story before, and you'll know that Gideon at this point is hiding away from the Midianites. He's got some grain and he's threshing it because he needs to eat, and the rest of the population is starving. And he's hiding away in a wine press because things are so desperate. And he's saying, just kind of, he's at the end of himself. And at this point, the angel of the Lord appears to him and gives this great speech. And and Gideon then goes into a load of questions. He starts off by questioning who God is. Well, if God really is interested, why are we suffering in the way we are? If God really did care, why is this going on in our lives? If God is able to help, why Hasn't he? Where are the miracles our ancestors told us about? Didn't they say the Lord has brought us up out of Egypt, but now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to the Midianites? Gideon's first response to the angel is to accuse God of abandoning them, to question why. Who, where's God then? Look around. The Lord is with me, but look around the whole nation. We're in a mess. And he goes on from that. He doesn't just stop there. After the angel says to him, go in the strength you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites, Gideon says this, but Lord, how can I rescue Israel? My clan 
is the weakest and I'm the least in the, my entire family. And God says, I will be with you. Gideon's questions around two things. Firstly, God's identity and, and who he is and what he's done, whether God's living up to all the promises that God, he felt God had made. And then Gideon's own sense of himself, and he's looking at himself and going, well, even if you are with me, God, I still not, don't amount so much. The two of us, what can we do against this great horde of the Midianites? He's in a mess, and he's lacking himself. And then God tells him, before we get to this next verse, God tells him this. He says, go. Go and take down the altar that your father has built. Because his dad had built an altar to a false god called Baal. And he'd put a pole next to it, which is called an Asherah pole. And God says to Gideon to go and tear those two things down and, and then build an altar to God on top of that. So he establishes right at the start, it gives Gideon a task to do that's at home. It's not a national one. It won't relieve him from the Midianites. It won't get rid of the, the hordes that are making Israel hungry and, and beset by kind of lack of food, famine. He just says, go and do this thing at home. Go and do a small task to start with. Go and take down your dad's false altar. And so Gideon does, but he's still scared. And so he goes at night with 10 friends and they tear down the false altar at night. And then there's a bit of a hoo-ha the following day. Who took down the altar? And there's kind of a discussion that goes on. That's not the main point I want to make today. But, but it's, it starts with the fact that God challenges him to do something privately uh, first. That's the first stepping off point. God does something almost in the secret place for Gideon and says, okay, I'll prove who I am, but then I want you to do this. And now when Gideon had taken on that task, God then gives him something else to do, which is to lead the entire nation into battle. And before he leads the nation into battle, we read this verse here. Then the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon with power. He blew a ram's horn, ha, ram's horn as a call to arms, and the men of the clan of Abiezer came to him. And th then Gideon begins this battle where he's stepping out on behalf of the Lord, leading the whole of the nations of Israel into battle. Gideon, the man who spoke back to the angel, the man who said, where's God then if we're suffering like this? And who am I? That man was clothed and anointed by God. Then the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon with power. It's a great thought, isn't it? That, that God's kind of putting, dressing him with the garments that he needed. Putting on his spirit like a garment and saying, come on then Gideon, over the top of you. Here's my anointing, here's my empowering. Put this on over the top. Wear my cloak, wear my garment instead of your own. Wear my power instead of yours. Wear my name instead of yours. Co cover over everything that's of you with me and go into battle that way. And do you know what happened afterwards? Then Gideon said this. Then Gideon said to God, if you're truly going to use me to rescue Israel as you promised, prove it to me in this way. And this is the same Gideon that's just as scared as he was at the beginning, that's still scared after the anointing. After the empowering, Gideon hasn't changed and he's still asking God questions and he's still asking God to prove himself. And underneath this kind of cloak of anointing that God's putting on, Gideon's still got loads of questions. And as I read this story, a few things stood out to me particularly. And I want to just quickly look at these. And we're looking at Gideon, the guy who, who you wouldn't have picked, but who God did for this task. 
Notice firstly, sometimes our problems come together. You're in the middle of one and you think, oh, I hope I don't get anything else coming. And sometimes they come more than one at once. The Midianites came and camped themselves in the land of Israel, but they didn't come alone. They came with the Amalekites and the people of the east. And sometimes we get situations which come and they seem to hit us harder than we'd imagine. Secondly, the enemy's hitting where the tribe of Israel are most vulnerable. And this is an enemy tactic still today, to hit us where we're vulnerable. The, the Midianites don't even go into battle. There's not even a fight that you read about. They just come and they camp themselves on the land and destroy the crops and leave them with nothing to eat. And they take away the cattle and the sheep and the goats. And, and Israel are left going, well, well, at least fight us. Do something, but nothing. Sometimes the enemy attacks us where we're most vulnerable. Sometimes, like the Israelites here, it takes us a long time to realize that we need God's help and to admit that we need God's help. Seven years in their case, they waited and they waited and they waited. And it makes you think, well, what were they waiting for? Kind of one, surely one summer would have been enough. One harvest ruined would have been enough for them to be crying out to God and saying, God, we're sorry. We repent. We must have done something wrong. We must have missed it somewhere. But no, seven years, one after another after another. I've written on there, our questions are not the real issue. This is Gideon. So he's facing God and the Lord's angel with questions. And, but that's not really the issue. The issue at the, the heart of it is, who is God and can I trust him? And who am I and can I trust God? God's identity and our identity are the fundamental things that Gideon's struggling with. You can be empowered and feel the same. This is the fact that Gideon, wearing this cloak of God's anointing, still is asking God to prove himself. And you may think, well, I've been baptized, I've been baptized in the Holy Spirit, but I still feel scared. I still feel like me. I still feel like I've got loads of questions. Join the club. Join the club, which is, features people like Gideon, who led the army into battle. Join the club. There's a different battle coming. This is just the thought that Gideon had to fight the private battle before he fought the public one. And when you're fighting a battle, there might be another one still to come. And none of us want to hear that. But whatever God's taking you through today, he can get you through whatever lies ahead tomorrow too. Finally, on the story of Gideon, Gideon sends a person. I love praying for revival. I love praying that God would do his thing because that means I can sit at home and pray and God will do his thing somewhere else. But you know, God routinely, persistently sends people. He says, go on then. You've prayed for revival, so be revived. Now go and bring revival everywhere. And I wish God wouldn't do that. I really wish he would answer my prayer and just get on with doing the stuff I'm asking him to do without involving me because that would be a lot easier for me and for you. And I'm being flippant, but these are profound. This is profound because actually we're the answer that God's looking for. As we pray to him, he says, okay, I'm sending you. Moving on quickly. Deborah. This is Judges chapter 4. Just to turn the page if you're in a Bible or flick on your screen to get to the next chapter, a couple of chapters before, Judges chapter 4. It says this, After Ehud's death, Ehud was another one of Israel's judges, the Israelites again did evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord turned them over to King Jabin of Hazor, a Canaanite king. The commander of his army was Sisera, who'd lived in, now there's a place name, I don't know if it's on your screen. I've taken it off the screen. That was for good, good reason. 
Harosheth Hagoyim. That would be great over the phone, wouldn't it? Give you a postcode and what number, where do you live? Harageth Hagashim, you know, whatever it was. Anyway, Harasheth Hagoyim. Sisera, who had 900 iron chariots, chariots, ruthlessly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. Are you getting this yet? We've got the people of Israel go their own way, don't notice that there's a problem, and then they begin to cry out to God after 20 years. The first one was seven. This one, 20. Man, the similar pattern. This time it's not the Midianites, it's the Canaanites, but again they're suffering uh, because we've got Sisera who's riding in with 900 iron chariots. The Canaanites, the people of the plains, coming in to destroy and fight and ruthlessly oppress Israel. So what's God going to do in this situation as the people are crying out for help? Well, actually we read that the answer's already in play. This is the next verse. It says this, Deborah, the wife of Lapidoth, was a prophet who was judging Israel at that time. She would sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites would go to her for judgment. I'm just going to pause it there. Now this is an interesting passage. So we've got Gideon, who's met by the angel, who says, you're going to become this thing you're not already. Go and do it. In this story, it's quite different. So in this story, the Israelites are crying out for help, but the answer is already present in the sense that Deborah is already in place, and she's already judging, leading, depending on which version you're reading, judging Israel at that time. And she's sitting and, and reconciling disputes. She's sitting as people are going to her for, for counsel and wisdom. This is like Moses leading the Israelites out of Egypt when he's saying, I've got too many people coming to him. And Jethro, his father-in-law, says, well, you're doing too much. Divide up the responsibilities, subdivide it so that you're, you're dealing with the questions that nobody else can answer, but, but delegate out. It's like Solomon when we read King Solomon who's dealing with the two women that come and one has lost a child. Well, they both had children and one has died and there's a story going on and Solomon, that's where you get the phrase, the wisdom of Solomon from. Solomon's got to make a decision about what to do in this moment and he's judging the people. That's what Deborah's doing as she's sitting there judging Israel. Anything difficult that needs working through, where do we go with it? We go to Deborah. She'll tell us what God wants. So she's doing that judging part, but she's also, amazingly, a prophet says so she's a prophet who's judging Israel at the time. That means that she's already anointed and empowered by God. I mean, she's already speaking for God. She's already received that cloak, that anointing, that covering of the Holy Spirit. And she's speaking out on God's behalf. And that's why people know they can trust her. So this Deborah character kind of carries a bit of Moses because she's, she's doing the judging bit that Moses did, or a bit of Solomon, the kingship bit, because she's not a king, but she's judging like Solomon did. And then she's got a bit of that... Um, that other aspect where she's, she's also pre- prophesying. It's a bit like Samuel. She's speaking as a prophet where she's speaking on God's behalf. And here she is sitting and waiting. And then one day, this is what God does. The word of God comes to this woman. And God gives a word to her. And the word is this. As she sends for back some son of Abinoam, And she says to him, this is what the Lord God of Israel commands you to do. Now, Deborah's many things, but she's not the commander of the Lord's armies. 
And so she calls this guy Barak and says, lead the armies of God into victory. Lead them. And Barak says, well, I'm not going to go if you're not coming with me. I don't think it's just that he was so scared that he, he particularly wanted Deborah, but there's something that she's carrying. She's representing the voice of God. There are times when we read this throughout Scripture when people say, oh, I need to hear from God. Uh, and if you know that there's one person that the nation's going to to hear the voice of God, you're going to want them on your side in the battle. You're going to want to know, do I attack now or do I wait? Do, do we go at the head or at the back? Or what's God's plan? And I, I'm not confident myself, so Deborah, would you come with me? And she says, well, I will. But you'll receive no honor in this venture. For the Lord's victory over Sisera will be in the hands of a woman. And so Deborah went with Barak to the place called Kadesh. And the battle's fought and the battle's won. And you read through the story and you go, oh, Deborah's going to get the, the honor and the glory. And it's not her at all. It's a different woman. It's a different woman called Jael. J-A-E-L. And Sisera, the man who's got all these chariots, goes at the end of a battle, goes towards her tent, and she invites him in and says, oh, come in. Don't be afraid. And Sisera, this mighty man with his 900 chariots, goes in and says, please give me some water. And he says, oh, I'll do better than that. Here's some milk. And he relaxes. This is relaxing. He says, oh, stand at the door of the tent, and if anyone comes in, say, I'm not here. He's scared. And then he falls asleep. And then the Bible says, Jael quietly crept up to him with a hammer and a tent peg in her hand. And then she drove the tent peg through his temple and into the ground. And so he died. There you go. That's what the Bible says. And so the honor of defeating this commander didn't go to Barak. It went to Jael, who was this woman who had a tent peg and a hammer and took things into her own hands. And determined that this man was going to die. What do we learn from Deborah's story? Well, there's a few things. Firstly, it's important to get on with serving God. Just get on with it. You might have ruled yourself out. Gideon did because you probably wouldn't have picked him and he wouldn't have picked himself. Deborah, you might say, well, she's a woman. What's she doing there? Why is she judging Israel? Why is she the person to go to? Why is she a prophet? Surely, but the Bible doesn't say there's any problem with the men. It just says that she was doing it. It's very matter of fact. So if God's anointed Deborah to do it, she should get on and do it as she is when we get to this story. And if God's anointed you to do something, get on and do it. God loves empowering people you wouldn't expect. I think I've said enough on that already. When God instructs us, this is a word for Barak. When God instructs us, trust is equipping. When God instructs Barak, he says, go. And Barak should have trusted him, but he didn't. And he was a bit slightly nervous, but really wanted Deborah there. Deborah gives us a foretaste of what's to come. This is a really important one. I won't dwell on it for time's sake, but it's, it's really significant. So James last week was speaking about the day of Pentecost. He included that in his talk. When Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes, and we're seeing these anointed people through the Old Testament. We get to this day in the book of Acts where where Peter stands up and he quotes Joel's prophecy. And he says, God will pour out his spirit on all people. Sons, your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. I pour out my spirit even on my servants, men and women alike, and they will prophesy. Deborah is, is giving us a hint, as did Miriam and as did Huldah, these, these other women prophets in the Old Testament that the nation go to at key points. She's giving us a foretaste of what's to come. 
when the Holy Spirit will be poured out, not prophetically just on one, mostly men and a few women, but actually it's going to be poured out on all people, men and women. And the whole of the nation of Israel, or the whole of the church, will be able to prophesy and speak in Jesus' name. Deborah, she's not a trailblazer in a sense. She's just doing what God's placed on her life to do. But she's, she's pointing towards something that's coming. A people empowered. Don't write people off. And then the final point, don't go camping. Or if you do go camping, watch out for, make sure you counted all the tent pegs. Um, finally and very quickly, it's the story of Daniel. So we've had Gideon and Deborah and Daniel now. So Daniel chapter 1 verse 5. This is a story that doesn't give us quite the same introduction, but there's a, a little bit here, and it says this. During the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, as part of the bigger nation of Israel, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave him victory over Kim, King Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia and placed them in his treasure house, the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. Select only strong, healthy, and good-looking young men, he said. Make sure they are well-versed in every branch of learning and are gifted with knowledge and good judgment and are suited to serve in the royal palace. Train these young men in the language and literature of Babylon. The king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchens. They were to be trained for three years. Then they would enter the royal service. So we've got these three, these four guys that we particularly go on to read about. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, who are there. And they've been chosen from this tribe of Judah. And as they're there, they're, this is Israel now. They've got in a bit of a mess again. You're familiar with the story. They've got in a mess. And what's happened is that they're not being besieged now. That's already taken place. And their city has been destroyed. And they've been taken captive into exile. Not for seven years, not for 20 years, but this time for 70 years. So the people of Israel have been taken from their home, the people of Judah have been taken from their homeland and taken off to another land. So these are effectively people who've been enslaved. They're, they're being looked after, some of them. And they've chosen the best. The king of Babylon's chosen the best for his service. He, he wants the nobles. He wants the good-looking guys. He wants the healthy ones. He wants the strong ones. He wants them to come and be part of his team. But still, they have very few choices. And we read of Daniel in this passage who's he's other, he's been given another name called Belteshazzar. And he's known as, as chief of the magicians because he, he does various things for, for, for God. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar, I'm going to go back to that one because that's distracting me. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream at one point and says, oh, what do, I, what do I do? I'm disturbed by my dream. And so he calls together his magicians, they're described as, the people who interpret dreams for him. And he summons them together and he says, well, what I want you to do is to tell me what my dream was and interpret it for me. And you can imagine all these guys go, well, if you tell us your dream, we'll interpret it for you. I'm thinking at least I've got something to go on then. But, but to tell you the dream and to interpret it for you, that's too much to ask. And so the king just flips and says, well, I'm going to kill everybody then. All the magicians, all the, all the enchanters, all these people that are in my service performing this task, you're going to die. And Daniel doesn't hear the news of, first off, he only hears the news eventually when the king's guard comes to him. Ariok, he's called, the commander of the king's guard comes, and he comes to kill him. And Daniel says, well, what, 
Why has the king issued such a harsh decree? And Daniel learns the story and, and he gets his mates to pray. And he says, just pray, pray that God, because we know that God can reveal the dream and God can give us the interpretation of it. So while they're praying, he sends word back with Ariok and says, look, tell the king to give us a few more days and we'll pray. And they do. And Daniel goes to the king a little bit later on and he's been given the interpretation. He's been given the dream and the interpretation. And so he goes back and he tells Nebuchadnezzar what the dream is and they talk about it and and he's amazed. And Nebuchadnezzar ends up uh, saying that God is the only one worth worshipping. He bows down to Daniel and commands his people to offer sacrifices to him. Which is crazy. But then he says this, Truly your God is the greatest of gods, the Lord over kings, a revealer of mysteries for you've been able to reveal this secret. And again and again, what happens is Daniel gets promoted and promoted and promoted until a little later on, Nebuchadnezzar had another dream. And he says this, I said to him, this is Nebuchadnezzar speaking, Belteshazzar or Daniel, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too great for you to solve. Now tell me what my dream means. What do we learn from Daniel's story? Well, if we have more time, we'll be able to say that we that where we are is more important than we think. That you can make a difference. That even when you're empowered, bad stuff still happens and that God has more to show you. I'll quickly look at those, but recap first. Gideon, we wouldn't have picked and he wouldn't have picked himself. You could argue, some could argue, that Deborah, you shouldn't have picked. Or that Jael, you shouldn't have picked. That you should have picked Barak. But no, that wasn't God's way of working. Daniel, you might have argued that he couldn't serve God. He couldn't be empowered. He couldn't serve from where he was because he was captive. He was enslaved. He was under someone else's command. And he didn't have very many choices at all. Wouldn't, shouldn't, couldn't. But actually, where Daniel was was more important than than he realized at the time. And my prophetic word to each one of us today is that where you are is more important than you think. The fact that you're there is more important than you think. This could be workplace, it could be school, it could be home, it could be street, it could be all sorts of areas that actually where we are, we've got a bigger role to play than you realize at this time. That God's empowering and God's anointing, God's enabling, enables us to do more, even in a place of challenge like Daniel had, than you could ask or imagine. You can make a difference. Daniel made a powerful difference, even as effectively a slave, albeit a promoted one, he made a very significant difference in that nation and for the whole people of God. Even when you're empowered, bad stuff can happen. What do I mean by that? Well, Daniel ended up going through some pretty turbulent times, pretty difficult times, but again and again he found that God was there with him. His friends ended up thrown into a furnace to see if they would survive, and they did. Daniel ended up in a pit with some lions, and they didn't eat him. There's story after story after story. And you'd imagine that, well, if God's with me, it's going to be great. It's going to be amazing. But actually what Daniel finds is it's tough sometimes. But God's still with him and still changing lives through him. God's got more to show us. So if you're feeling today that you wouldn't serve God or that someone wouldn't choose you. That actually there's no point God anointing you cause, or empowering you because it wouldn't make much difference. Listen again to the story of Gideon. Read the story of Gideon again. If you're feeling that you shouldn't be the one chosen, 
that there's some reason that disqualifies you, that there's something in your past, something in your present, something about who you are or your temperament that says, no, no, I shouldn't be the one. Listen again to what God says. He's chosen you. He's calling you. Don't write yourself off. If finally you think, well, I'm in a situation where I couldn't do anything anyway, what can God do through me? Read and think about the story of Daniel. That as these people were empowered, he was in a difficult situation, but God still could and did use him. Let's pray.